Welcome to Transit Zone, inquiring conversations from coronavirus world. I'm Peter Clark from Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Narang, Queensland. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live, work and are recording this podcast and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. In a moment, we'll meet our guest on this episode of Transit Zone, digital rights lawyer Lizzie O'Shea. Well, there's been a clear shift in coronavirus world this week. With overall improving data on COVID infection rates, our federal government has released their own overarching strategy of staged easings of the lockdown and social distancing. Individual states are charting their own ways ahead with broadly different approaches within that strategy. The tone and texture of political debate has also shifted more contentious and partisan again. Reopenings are occurring. Citizens are flocking back into public in many places. Shopping malls are filling up again. Social distancing is further diluting. The return of students to schools remains a contentious issue. And of course, there's a strident section of our society who believe that the pandemic is overhyped and the lockdown and social distancing are political overreach and a bridging of rights and liberties. The false binary between lives and livelihoods is threaded through our political debates under several guises. We're hearing the phrase, after corona everywhere, along with snapback and bounce back, despite the fact that after corona is currently more wishful thinking than plausible future reality, as is a vaccine for the virus. Many are fearful of a second wave of COVID infections as isolation and social distancing strictures reduce. The next immediate period will tell that story. And of course, the future shape and character of our economy is critical. The forces of established self-interest are clearly contending for that future right now as are those with fundamental reforms in their sights. The federal government has placed great score on their COVID tracking app. The latest reports say about 5.5 million citizens have uploaded that app. Many refuse to do so on principle. That app, privacy and surveillance, are our focus today in the transit zone. Our guest is digital rights lawyer, chair of Digital Rights Watch, and author of Future Histories, Lizzie O'Shea, Lizzie, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Just before we get stuck into some of the substance of this discussion, how are you personally dealing with coronavirus world? I must admit I quite enjoy it. Uh, The courts are still functioning and working despite uh, facing pretty difficult technological challenges to allow that to happen. So I'm still able to work, which is uh, something that I'm very grateful for at this point. And it's nice to have your loved ones nearby. So all things considered, I consider myself very fortunate. Please lay the ground for us for this discussion today. When we talk about privacy, we often think about a world sealed off from view. We think about the home and the comfort of a protected threshold, a place to unwind, to care for others, to be vulnerable, a place to be an authentic version of ourselves without judgment. Technology has invaded our homes, occupied our psyche, gotten under our skin, leaving no moment unrecorded and no decision unnoticed. This occupation of our autonomy has been entrenched during lockdown, when more of our lives than ever take place online. Need cash fast? Google will help you find a payday lender. Bored at home alone? Your smartphone will find things for you to gamble on to pass the time. Think you're fat? 
Your smart fridge and your smart TV will smartly conspire to promote diet and exercise programs. This grooming for consumption saturates platforms, the spaces where we participate in public life, where we socialise and find intimacy. They are, in fact, neither public nor private spaces. They are, in fact, marketplaces. And remember, if you're a man, you always deserve it. And if you're a woman, you're never enough. But technology is not a force of nature. It's not inevitable or unstoppable. Technology is a product of our social relations. And society is not just an object that technology does things to. Society is a group of people with agency and a collective desire to shape the future. You can see it in street groups formed on Facebook to buy groceries for those who can't risk the trip themselves, in the personal stories shared on Twitter, in the posts that make you laugh on TikTok. Of course, online life is not always sweetness and light, but what makes these big tech platforms good is not the bright idea of some billionaire in a hoodie, it's people being themselves, practicing the politics of care and solidarity. If we treat this pandemic as a portal to a different world, as Arundhati Roy has put it, we can take the best from these platforms and leave the rest behind. So when we talk about privacy, maybe we aren't really talking about a world sealed off from view. Maybe what we really mean is freedom and autonomy and liberation from the motivations of the market so that we are no longer judged on our worth as consumers, but rather as people. Okay, so basically you're saying, I think that coronavirus world could entrench and expand the tech surveillance state marketplace and government or could disrupt it. Have you seen any evidence on the ground that there's a an urge for people to take control of technology and or is it do you think realistically that we're going down that rabbit hole and we'll never get out? Well, realistically, surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff calls it, and she's written the tome on this topic, is already entrenched in the sense that it's a multi-billion dollar economy collecting data about us as individuals, grooming us as consumers, serving us up as audience platforms for advertising, essentially. And so to that end, I think it's something that we already live with. It's becoming more obvious and pronounced as you're unable to escape it. If you spend huge amounts of your life online, then of course, more of your activities will be recorded in that way. And often if you're drawn to a platform that's popular or well used, then that centralization empowers those who already hold power. So it's of course getting worse is what I should say. Uh, But I, I think it's probably becoming more apparent to people. And I think people are also like anything in this coronavirus crisis, they're starting to question whether we have to do things the way we've been doing them, and maybe we might be able to do them differently. The Parliament has just passed the privacy protections and protections for breaches of of data use. What do people need to know about this law before deciding whether to sign on or sign off? One of the first things to be said is you have to ask the question as to whether contact tracing using technology is going to be useful for you. So if you're someone who is staying at home a lot, who's very conscious of who they might have been in contact with, who's at very low risk of passing it on to others in a way that they might not be able to recall later, then maybe the use of technology is good for you. And that kind of practical question, I think, is where we should all start because that's the most important question. Could, if you use this app, it be effective? 
And if it is effective and, and it's right for you, then I think you start to question whether the law in place is the right one for protecting people's privacy. Now, I've had a look at the law. I had a look at it when it was released as a public exposure draft and there's been some changes. I think it's a lot better than it it could have been. It does come in a context of two decades of expansion of powers for national security and law enforcement agencies and many years of messed up technology projects by our government. And that deficit of trust doesn't come from nowhere. So I still think the government's got a lot more work to do to restore it. To me, if you don't use public transport or live or work in a place where there's extremely close contact with people like an abattoir, I can't see why a diary isn't better. The whole mechanism is that you're recorded when you spend 15 minutes or more in less than 1.5 metres from another person. And to people in my position, that just doesn't happen. And why not just just keep a little diary. I I don't know why, but I'm profoundly suspicious of what the government is trying to do about whether there is a need for everyone to sign up to this app. And I was really disturbed last night in the 7.30 report to hear that there's no automatic expiry date when all this data is destroyed. What do you think about the effectiveness of what they're proposing? Yeah, I think that's the most critical question and that's what we need to have an educated discussion about rather than this moralism where Scott Morrison stands in front of a press conference with nurses and other frontline healthcare workers claiming that if you don't download the app, then you're somehow failing these people. I think that's a really unhelpful way to frame this debate because I don't don't think that's necessarily true. We don't know how effective it will be, but I think we can make some educated guesses. I think you're absolutely right if you feel like you are able to effectively trace who you've been in contact yourself manually, then there's no reason why a a record like that couldn't be superior. Of course, there'll be design parameters on this app. And you mentioned uh, one about two metres or 1.5 metres, I think is the current plan, but you mentioned 15 minutes, which of course doesn't necessarily bear out because you can be in contact with someone for a lot shorter period of time and still contract the virus. So there's design decisions there that that it will be very critical in terms of how effective it is at contact tracing absolutely it seems to me the the app's dead it was launched with quite a fanfare and as you say there was a lot of moral suasion attached to it if you love your country you'll download the app just over five million people have downloaded it at this stage but what's really striking to me is that the government's backed off a lot of that rhetoric over the last say week or so it just seems to me maybe the whole idea is dead Yeah, Tim, I agree with you. I think that's accurate. And I think also where other countries have experimented with this and it doesn't seem to be as effective as, say, mass widespread testing, like somewhere like Iceland, for example, there's reporting coming out here now that suggests that the use of an app like this has not been effective. But I think you're absolutely right. The politics has changed in the last week. And I'm really pleased about that, in part because I think there were ambitions within the government to make this something much more expansive than it's ended up. Many countries in the world are now experimenting with the idea of digital identity, of creating an identity for yourself that the government can track and manage for accessing services and the like, but ultimately also eventually for surveillance purposes as well. And you could see how this particular moment could have been an opportunity where a program like that was launched. And that's not what we've seen. And in fact, what we've seen 
is legislation that was far ahead of what I would expect it to be, knowing this government, and also a relatively low take-up rate, which suggests that this initiative hasn't really worked. And I don't think you need to be conspiracy theory theorist to to think that there's something good there for people's rights, uh, notwithstanding that, of course, there's a still a health crisis that we have to contend with. Lizzie, as people took sides on the app and said, yes, I'm going to download it, no, I'm not going to download it, a very common line was, well, we're already lost our privacy, there's already pervasive surveillance, so shrug, let's do it for the common good. What's your take on that? Well, this is a common argument in lots of different scenarios, but my first answer to that is that, sure, you may have given up intimate information to someone like Google or Facebook, but Google and Facebook do not command police forces. Uh, They don't decide whether you get access to welfare. Uh, They don't manage voting in electoral system. And so they're not the same qualitatively as the state. And then the second point I would raise about this is I'm not a privacy fatalist. I think the fact that people are concerned about how much information these private companies hold about us is a good thing. And we need to regulate them better so that they can stop packaging up our intimate information and turn it into a product that they sell to advertisers. I think it's time we put a limit on that. And the fact that people are concerned about it should be a motivation for lawmakers to address that. Aren't we all data peasants now, though? Well, I think this is a moving feast. Like it's always going to be something that that the market tries to do, tries to invade all our spaces, entrench itself and occupy it in real time. And that means we can also stop it. It's not beyond our grasp to regulate things differently. There's experiments like this all over the world where different jurisdictions are, are thinking about regulating the use and the collection of data differently. As the worst excesses of this industry become more and more publicly exposed and uh, and people start to understand the gravity of them, I think we'll see more initiatives like that from lawmakers and ultimately a constituency and a movement that supports greater protection for privacy. And we can put an end to these uh, these industries of, of capitalist surveillance. If you don't want to have all your, your data used and, and stored, etc., what do you recommend? What's the best encryption to just stop it all? That's the first question. And the second question is, there's been a lot of talk about how compliant Australians are. But to me, having less than 40% take up on an app that our very popular now Prime Minister says you must upload or you won't get back to work shows that that's not the case. And I just wonder where we stand compared to other countries who have, have tried this on their citizens. Yeah, well, so to answer your first question, what can you do to protect yourself from surveillance capitalism and what kind of steps can you take to protect yourself from surveillance? I think there are a few things you can do. There's uh, different software that you can use, lots of resources online from organisations like Electronic Frontiers Foundation provide guidance on those kinds of products. I would make the point, though, that privacy is a collective issue. It's not necessarily a question of individual choice. Once data companies know particular things about a cohort of people, if you're in that cohort of people, you will be classified in a particular way, even if you're very careful about what you share about yourself. My point there is that even if, you're, if, you, if you don't share any information about you at all, there are things that companies can learn by information that's been shared 
by others who are like you. To that end, what we actually need is regulation, not necessarily just better choices and better, um, the more capacity to negotiate this contractual relationship of privacy, but actually a better regulated ecosystem of online life, which doesn't allow data to be used for purposes other than the purpose it was collected. So as to your second question about how Australians are quite compliant, how we how we fare against others, I mean, I think that you're right. We do have a culture of respect for law enforcement. You know, when the hotline came out for reporting people who weren't social distancing, it was an overwhelming number of calls were received by the hotline, and I felt slightly embarrassed about that, unfortunately, because, you know, the larrikin spirit is actually often more of a myth than reality. The other aspect of that is that the way in which we've managed to get to this point in the crisis with relatively few deaths and a low um, community transmission rate is because people have been doing the right thing. They have been staying home. They have been washing their hands. And that's something that they're rarely given credit for. And in fact, all through the media, it's been this constant barrage of abuse towards everyday people and moralizing and and patronizing headlines around the failure to stop hoarding, that people were going to Bondi Beach, you know, that people People weren't downloading the app enough. They're not doing the right thing. And in fact, I feel like lots of people have been doing the right thing. And that's partly how we got to this point, not because of our politicians, sometimes in spite of them. And that's the good side of compliance. It's a form of solidarity. But I actually do think it's an issue for the left to work out how you navigate the difference between desiring that kind of compliance and authoritarianism, even on the left, as compared to solidarity that comes from the bottom up, say, that is based on care and respect rather than fear and and deference. I mean, Australia, you're right to point out, has had a low take up of that app. And I think that reflects a number of major technology projects that the government has not managed well, Mm. that that history is Mm. present in people's minds. So something like My Health Record, which I think was a bit of a disaster from a comms perspective because they didn't design it, I think, in ways that they ought to have and it was quite obvious and people get very nervous about sharing very intimate information with them about themselves with the government on a government-mandated system unless they feel confident the government knows what it's doing. Or there's something like robo-debt, a totally botched-up attempt to clawback money that was often rightly given to people who were accessing benefits from Centrelink and proven in a court to be bad policy and people watched that. And then when a journalist raised concerns about this particular program, her personal information was spoken about publicly by politician. Mm. So what does that teach you? That if you're a critic of the government about these projects, then you might be at risk of having your personal information exposed. So it becomes much easier just to not do what is required or what you're told is required of you by the government, not download the app, and then avoid potentially that risk. I think this comes off the back of a deficit of public trust that's well-earned by the government and their comms haven't always been particularly compelling trying to fix that problem. But in relative terms, uh, it is low. It's not clear exactly what numbers would be needed in order for the app to be effective. But in other places like Iceland, for example, that worked with one of these apps, it was around 38% of the population, which is a huge number. That's probably at the top end of the spectrum. And then in places like Singapore, which we'd often associate with deference to the government and trust in the government, it was in the high teens, around 17 18%. So there's a big variance and it's not always tracking politically with how the country treats its citizens or understands its government. 
so I suppose the question is, does the government have public trust in technology projects? That might be the critical question, I think, that probably explains it in our context. I noticed when I was talking to people about the app, the very common response I got was, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. So even if they're tracking you, if you're not doing anything wrong, there's no problem. I think this is a really common argument. Privacy isn't just about that sort of big brother surveillance, is it? It's it's also about that social relationship, as you said, that we have. So governments and corporations start to develop these versions of you for marketing purposes, largely, or access to services. But we have very little control over that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a form of political organising, really, of people into their worth as consumers for the economy of online advertising, for data brokers, that kind of thing. That's often missed, I think, in these individualised discussions about what you've agreed to and what you haven't, whether you've ticked terms and conditions or not. There's other ways in which it takes form. The most obvious one is that, of course, time on device is something that's very important to platforms in this context because the longer you're on the device, the more advertising you'll see, the more they'll learn about what kind of advertising has an impact on you. And that can lead to, it's well documented, more extremist kind of content working with the algorithm because it it keeps people on a platform and that happens in places like YouTube, places like Facebook as well, where you end up in this polarised world which is designed to keep you on device, to keep you scrolling through the endless news feed or keep the next video running and hold you in that space and and therefore appealing to more extremist politics, which has a devastating impact on our our democracy, not just because it allows extremists to take hold, but it also means you struggle to have solidarity and understanding across political divides and and find common understandings for political problems and the like. And the last thing I would say about those people who love to talk about how if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about, I love them because clearly they've uh, they've never um, done anything naughty in their lives that they'd ever be embarrassed about. But they also don't particularly like handing over their credit card number when you ask for it, which is what I usually do when someone says that to me. Lizzie, people place great score on actual outcomes, don't they? And we can just shift our gaze to South Korea and their struggle with coronavirus. They came in pretty hard very early with tracking apps, authoritarian measures. How do you see that? Yeah, South Korea is one. The obvious other one to talk about in this context is Singapore. And Singapore, who who used an app as well, upon which the Australian app has been modelled. What I would say, though, is that the Singaporean app, at least, the source code was immediately made public, whereas in Australia it wasn't. It took a long time for the government to release the source code, which to my mind always highlights a problem there. That they're Not necessarily that they're hiding something, but they're far too hasty and they're not willing to let people scrutinise the source code to check that the technology is doing what it's doing, even though it's very acceptable in somewhere like Singapore to do that immediately. But what it also really exposes for me, both in South Korea and Singapore, is that the problem, the spread of this virus, there's ways to attempt to manage it technologically, but it's ultimately, I think, a social and political question. And, you know, with somewhere like Singapore, which had appeared to manage and contain the virus, an outbreak among people who are very poor and disenfranchised service workers spread extremely quickly. And that's, I think, very telling. And and similarly, young people going out and and partying, you know, in somewhere like South Korea, that they uh, ended up spreading the virus very quickly as well. And that really what we need is to have a social discussion about what we've got to do in order to stop it, not just rely on these silver bullets of technology to try and get us through this moment. And in some cases, that might be understanding that we need to make 
big sacrifices and working out ways to accommodate and manage that and and acknowledge it. Uh, and on the other hand, it might also be to focus on helping people who are poor look after themselves properly and get access to the care that they need. I know you can't say coming out of coronavirus well because we're in it sort of semi-permanently for, for a year or two, but do you think there might be an impetus as a result of this experience to break up the big monopolies, Google, Facebook, and stop them just taking over new entrants? And do you also think there'll be more of a push to ask the big two and other big ones to not keep making super profits, but to plough money back in through taxes or otherwise to just to protect content providers, like necessary content providers in a democracy like regional newspapers, which have collapsed around around the world. Like, is there a showdown coming or, or in a way, are they just too too powerful now? Well, I think there was a movement to break up big tech before coronavirus. So Elizabeth mm. Warren obviously ran for president and one of her policies was to break up big tech. And there's very obvious reasons why that will be popular. You know, in terms of breaking up companies, there's it seems quite obvious that there'll be monopolistic tendencies when Facebook owns Instagram, which is very similar, or Amazon, you know, an online store owns Whole Foods, a bricks and mortar store. Uh, and so there's a very you know, logical and reasonable argument from a competition law perspective as to why this is inappropriate. But there's been a history of change in this field of law that's that's valued consumer welfare over, say, the monopolistic tendencies that might come from initiatives that may increase consumer welfare through consolidation. So it's interesting to see how that dynamic will play out now. I don't think these companies are too powerful. In fact, I think politicians like to give them a big kick sometimes when they feel like it makes them look better. So you will have seen that the ACCC has been tasked Asked with figuring out how to deliver on one of the recommendations that it made on in its digital platforms inquiry to look at how Google and other content, people who display content, other platforms that display content, will be able to be paying for that content to subsidise uh, essentially content producers that you described, people like regional newspapers and the like. I don't particularly mind that proposal. I don't think it's actually as good as it could be. I think actually what we need is these companies just to pay the proper amount of tax and not necessarily just assume that that should go directly into media production or that it should be flagged in that way. They need to start paying tax. It's unacceptable and immoral that they don't. And then we need to find a way to fund journalism outside of major cities and obviously outside of major topics and for the long haul for investigative reporting. And I don't think that should always come from a private revenue stream. I think we could set up independent foundations that could support that kind of journalism uh, so that advertising is not the seen as the only model for subsidising journalism. And so I think this is the moment to also experiment and think about how we could have a sustainable long-term media that is diverse without necessarily assuming that it ought to be profitable in the traditional sense through advertising or through siphoning revenue from big tech platforms either. I remember that the French tried to put a tax on Google and I can't remember if it was Facebook or not, but the mm. Trump just said, if you do that, there'll be a trade war. So <laughs> The French proposal I actually quite like, which was to do it on revenue rather than profit, which makes a mm. lot of sense in a context in which these companies have very sophisticated structures to avoid paying tax. This is a political question, like all tax is. It's a question of who you think should be allowed to get away with ill-gotten gains, who needs to subsidise the public purse, and it's often left to working people to do that rather than those who can afford it the most. We're coming into a situation where there's absolutely no money and there's massive deficits. So 
just seems to me there might be a bit of a, a possibility for, for the people to get together and say, you know, f- for goodness sake, you know, can you can you actually put a bit of tax on these on, on these super big guys? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why there's this phrase circulates on social media that every billionaire is a policy failure, and I, I think that's true. Lizzie, maybe we need to be more sophisticated in our thinking when we hear the word emergency. Perhaps in Australia we just go, oh, it's an emergency, we better do what they say. But I notice in other jurisdictions, including in Europe, they're a bit more analytical about what an emergency is, what it might be in terms of how long it's going to last. How do you see the whole idea of an emergency? I think that's a very interesting question. So in the legislation that governs the app that we talked about before, uh, at least in the public exposure draft, it was the Minister for Health that got to decide when the emergency was over and essentially the app would end and the data would be deleted. But, of course, the real question is when does that decision take place? And if we're looking at past conduct as a guide to future conduct, the obvious other example that comes to my mind is the terrorist attacks in the United States in 2001. And in Australia, we've seen over 80 pieces of legislation in the two decades since those attacks that have expanded the powers of the national security state, of law enforcement, to deal with this massive crisis problem of terrorism is what we keep being told. I feel like that's deeply problematic. I mean, lots of other writers have talked about this, Naomi Klein being the obvious one, talks about how these moments of crisis, that those in power know and appreciate that people will show deference to authority. That comes from a good place because people are trying to do the right thing, but it's an opportunity for those who hold power to consolidate and expand it. So I think we really need to think carefully when we talk about emergencies, how we're going to hold power to account, how we don't get to this permanent state of emergency in which all sorts of things are justified by those in power and those who don't agree with that are treated as pariahs. Lizzie, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about your book, Future Histories. Can you tell us how you came to write the book? Well, I've been an activist for many years and worked on all sorts of different campaigns. I was also a student of history in my tertiary education. And often when I was feeling despondent or I felt like obstacles were insurmountable in a particular campaign or issue that I was involved with, I would go back and look at past movements for a source of inspiration and also to kind of understand mistakes that were made, try and learn from them and get better at the advocacy that you do. So it always seemed like a logical thing for me to do. But when it comes to something like digital technology and the political questions that are thrown up by technology, that's often not how we understand it. Often technology comes into the world fully formed, unassailable and unstoppable. We sort of assume that it's got a quality that is unable to be critiqued. And often every problem is novel, every new development is unprecedented, and that's how we understand technology, rather than in its historical context, as a product of social relations, as having a history. And so it seemed like a good field in which you could make a lot of gains in terms of understanding technological problems and putting them in accessible language and um, telling stories that might uh, make it clearer what these debates are about for those who aren't from a technological audience or who haven't got experience with technology. And then on the other hand, it allows those who are very experienced with technology to add some context to these discussions and debates and hopefully argue for ways in which technology can develop in ways that are more democratic. I am hopeful that people on the left who've kind of tried to avoid technology debates 
we'll come to it a bit more because one of the things I think that progressives do is often think technology questions are too difficult or they don't have the qualifications to engage with. And I don't agree with that. I think we have to learn because it's an overlay on all different um, social political issues that we confront uh, in civil society. And I think we've got a bit more work to do there to draw all these connections together. But I'm really encouraged by the radicalisation that's going on in places like Silicon Valley, for example, which is a place that isn't often or hasn't been often associated with radicalism. Lizzie, one of the positive sides of coronavirus world for me personally has been the sense of creativity and inventiveness with many people, including the arts community, whom we're going to be speaking about in the Transit Zone next week and what's happened to them. We're seeing a big shift in retail. We're seeing people get online and doing performances. We're seeing adaptation on a whole scale level. Do you find that positive too? And do you think some of that's going to be permanent? It's really pushed us to find ways to develop social connection uh, outside of the physical experience of being in the same place, which uh, I hope is a lesson that we can remember. And it also means that those who perhaps are less able to get out of the house and participate will be the beneficiaries of that renewed sense of or that renewed capability of connection, even in online spaces. So I like to think that we won't forget this moment of opportunity for building our capacity to be more creative, interactive and engaged online in a good way, in a, in a sense of, in the social sense, rather than what being online has traditionally been associated with, which is often that it can be relentless, miserable, it can destroy your self-esteem uh, and it can be a place of bullying and meanness. I think what we're seeing here is that it's got the real potential to do other things. So let's try and make sure that's what we carry forward and take into the, the new world that we'll hopefully come to when this crisis is over. We are hugely dependent on this infrastructure. We need a government who's prepared to invest in it and not treat it as a project that they can, they can kick the can further down the road to deal with later. I mean, of course, it also exacerbates existing digital inequalities in particular or the digital divide, as it's often called. And I think that's also got implications for things like contact tracing apps, where often the people who are most vulnerable, I think, of contracting a virus or also having bad outcomes in the event that they contract the virus are often also people who perhaps aren't on the internet as much, aren't as uh, tech savvy. And so I think we've got work to do in encouraging those people, in helping them, in working with them to learn more about technology and giving them the resources to do that in all sorts of different ways. Scott Morrison didn't help very much when he touted the COVID app as like sunscreen, thereby suggesting that it had a protective quality to it, which a lot of people I suspect picked up and thought it may help them out there in the world with the infection. That was a false suggestion, of course. I mean, there was an, an article in the, I think it was the Daily Telegraph that talked about how people who are against the app were the next anti-vaxxers, which I take great offence oh. to. Um, there's this sense that that we need to suck it up and, and put aside these silly concerns we have about privacy in order to serve the public good. And I think that betrays a very poor understanding of what this technology is able to do because obviously it's nowhere near like a vaccine. It can't stop you getting the virus. But also it, it places far too much trust in government. It is a fundamental tenant of liberalism with a small L. You would not download the app. And, and remember early on, a few liberals and a couple of nats said they weren't going to download it in, in any circumstance. You're right to point out that I don't think it falls 
this issue falls on the usual left-right divide. Uh, it was Barnaby Joyce, I think, who said yep. that he wasn't going to download the app. And there's a whole constituency of of scepticism towards government that comes from the the right wing side of politics. It marries up this constituency on the right who are quite sceptical of government with a group of people on the left who have often been very critical of government for giving themselves lots of powers without account and having a, a long tradition of doing so over the last couple of decades. It's very difficult to have discussions about regulating technology or using technology, particularly in the workplace, with people of the left because there's always this prioritising of work and working people, etc. So anything like technology that looks like it might replace that sort of work and workplace is viewed with a great deal of suspicion. But we're nonetheless moving into this world where technology is increasingly involved in automating various tasks, etc. And we're seeing it at the moment with, in coronavirus world where you know technology has become absolutely vital to people being able to maintain any sort of connection with the working world. I think you're right to point out that there's almost this fetishization of work, that it's how we ought to get our life's meaning and that uh, there's that humble brag of being busy when you're asked how you are, uh, that you're doing something right if you're always busy and always working hard. And I understand why that's an appealing thing for Labor Party politicians to use or to refer to work as being uh, a place of dignity. There's obvious reasons why historically that's been true. But the way I try to tackle this in my book is I talk about automation and the redistribution of the benefits of automation in relation to work by looking back at the um, history of the movement for an eight-hour day, which, of course, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, began as a call for an 12-hour day before it became a call for a 10-hour day and ultimately the eight-hour day. And the idea being that you shouldn't have to work these terrible, long, insufferable hours in these industries of oppression and misery, particularly in 19th century places of uh, industrial activity, uh, and that calling for fewer hours to work was seen as a progressive uh, a move and, in fact, is arguably the most successful social movement in human history because now it's a standard adopted around the world in all sorts of ways. I think we could do something similar here, which is demand that we all work less so that everyone can work and that we redistribute the benefits of automation so that we can get rid of jobs that are unnecessary. We can have other things that we do in our lives, like care work and um, creative work which is often not recognised by the market, and become a, a more fulfilled society in doing so. And I, I think that's a politics that's open to us and uh, we need to kind of shed this 19th, 20th century vision of work being the only vehicle through which we get dignity and a sense of personhood in society, that actually we need to start understanding work as something that facilitates us living and that there's work that's not recognised by the market that's worth doing and that there's time we're entitled to that we deserve that we ought to be able to hive off from, from that productive work to have to ourselves and that Technology and the digital revolution, just like the industrial revolution, should facilitate that. It shouldn't work in the opposite way. Lizzie, thank you so much for being with us today in the Transit Zone. That's a fascinating area of discussion. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, Lizzie O'Shea, a digital rights lawyer and chair of Digital Rights Watch. Her book, which we've been alluding to, Future Histories, is a terrific and recommended read. But stay right there, Lizzie, because what we do in the transit zone is ask each other what we've been reading and listening to over the last week. Tim, what have you been reading? 
Um, I've just started a book by a woman called Maria Tamarkin. Uh, she's an Australian woman, um, and she recently won the, well, she was one of the recipients of the Wyndham Campbell Prize, which is a, like, it's worth a million or a million and a half dollars or something. She shared in that. And the book is called Axiomatic, and um, it's completely fascinating. She takes um, five axioms Time heals all wounds. History repeats repeats itself. Those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Give me the child before the age of seven and I'll give you the woman. And you can't enter the same river twice. And each of those is a chapter. And she investigates them in this really kind of um, boundary-shifting fusion of thinking, storytelling, reportage and mediation and meditation. It's um, uh, really quite fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. Tim, thinking of history repeating itself, I'm still deep in Rome by Robert Hughes. That muscular writing is keeping me going in coronavirus world. And of course, the echoes are there. And as we watch the United States at the moment, what many people are describing as their great decline, the echoes are very clear indeed. And I would recommend to people, if you're listening to other podcasts, and we're all here in the transit zone listening to podcasts around the traps at the moment, Talking Politics with David Runciman under the ages of the London Review of Books is an excellent podcast, very analytical, very discursive, and I would recommend that one. Margot. Okay. Um, I'm still in the 70s. I'm reading a book called Journal of the Solitude by an American poet um, and novelist, May Sarton, written in 73, and she journals her life alone for 12 months and claims that solitude is the seedbed of self-discovery. One can only hope. And the other thing I've just started um, listening to is a, a lot of my friends are rereading The Power of Now madly, just trying to, you know, get a distance from their regular panic attacks. And for people who are into Eckhart Tolle, which I am, he's just put up a free video course on spiritual awakening in coronavirus world, which may be very helpful to very many people. And Lizzie? Yeah, so I'm still working my way at the moment through The Anarchy by William Dalrymple, which is a history of the East India Company, uh, which I think is a fascinating insight into how, I guess, capitalism is essentially bound up with colonialism and violence. Uh, and it's a beautifully bit written book. It really brings out the personalities of those who are at the forefront of this story. That's a particular kind of history, so it's not for everybody, I don't think. But I do enjoy it as a kind of break from more social or theoretical histories. It's a rollicking tale that's definitely worth reading when it's so skillfully handled in an excellent writer. Lizzie, Tim, Margot, thanks so much for being with us in the Transit Zone. You can follow us on Twitter. Please do by using the handle Transit Zone Pod, Transit Zone Pod for Twitter. These podcasts are now searchable and you can subscribe at Spotify and iTunes. Most important, if you have comments, suggestions about how these podcasts should evolve, and coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore in future podcasts, please email us. This is the email address. Put it on the fridge, transitzonepod at gmail.com. And you can send audio too, your own brief audio essays, and we might play them here on The Transit Zone. Next time in The Transit Zone, a sector of our society really copying it, alongside hospitality, tourism, and aviation, and other crowds in a shared space industries, the arts and culture sector. It's been ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic. With our guest writer and arts critic, Alison Crocken, we'll discuss that 
and the implications for our cultural and creative futures in Australia. That's next time in Episode 3 of The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. For The Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time in The Transit Zone.